Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 92 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Chris Cluey. He's an NFL punter who played eight seasons with the Minnesota Vikings and currently plays for the Oakland Raiders. He made national headlines last year for a colorfully profanity-laden letter he wrote to Maryland State Representative Emmett Burns, taking him to task for his opposition to gay marriage. Cooey is also a hardcore geek who enjoys science fiction novels, video games, and pen and paper role-playing games. His new book, Beautifully Unique Sparkle Ponies, is a collection of highly opinionated essays on subjects ranging from football to mankind's future in space. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Douglas Cohen joins us to discuss sports and science fiction. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Chris Cluey. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. All right, so first of all, just uh, for our listeners, I I wanted to run through what some of your geeky interests are. Now, you belonged to a top-ranked World of Warcraft guild, and your Twitter handle is Chris Warcraft. You also write video game reviews, and you own your own tabletop gaming store. You claim to have read basically every fantasy and science fiction book in existence, and you're working on your own science fiction trilogy. Uh, is is that? Uh, am I missing anything there? Is that that most of the the big stuff? Yeah, that that should about cover it. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. So, I guess the first question I have is just: uh, Would you say that you're the geekiest pro athlete that you know of? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely say I am a uh, a geek first and and pro athlete second, and it's uh, yeah, a great way to uh, to fund all my hobbies. It's really fantastic. <laughs> Do you know of any other pro athletes that even come close? Like who would be in second place or anything like that? Um, I don't know anyone that comes close. Uh, I've met guys, you know, who played World of Warcraft, or I met one guy who played Final Fantasy XI. I was like, wow, that's uh, hats off to you, sir. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't met anyone who's into you know also like tabletop gaming and pen and paper gaming and just the, the variety of interests that I have. <laughs> Uh, so you said that you were you were always a huge nerd, but you were also good at sports. Uh, who, so who did you mostly hang out with growing up? Like, was it jocks or nerds or or what? Um, I, I hung out mainly with my friends. Uh, I had one really good friend growing up from kindergarten, and then uh, two other friends I met at high school: Jeff, Kai, and Austin. And uh, pretty much just hung out with them. And I I don't know that I would really classify us as either jocks or or geeks. I mean. Kai ran track, and uh, Jeff and Austin just kind of did normal PE, and then I played football and soccer and baseball. And, um, you know, we just we talk about video games and books and whatever. We, we just hung out. Well, you, you were telling us before we started recording that you still are playing uh, tabletop games uh, with Austin, right? So, I mean, your friends had some serious sort of geeky interests back then, I would, I would guess, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we all played video games, and, you know, we were, we were all huge into online games, and, uh, like, that was when uh, Ultima Online first came out, and Counter-Strike was just coming out, and, uh, you know, we were we were definitely into playing those, and we tried to run uh, some D&D campaigns and some Shadowrun campaigns, but we didn't really have the attention span for it then, so <laughs> <laughs> it inevitably fizzled out after a couple play sessions, but, uh, yeah, now now that we're older, uh, yeah, Austin's starting up a uh, another Shadowrun campaign, and I'm very excited to uh, begin playing and making my mage right now. I mean, I, I did hear you say in an interview that you um, 
uh, you kind of, as a kid, you would kind of give people a bad time sometimes, and that actually reading science fiction sort of helped you grow out of that. Could you talk about that? Yeah, it was more, um, you know, just kind of the social influences around me. It, it was like, okay, you know, that person's different. You know, let's make fun of them. And, uh, you know, I, I'd say reading sci-fi probably helped with that just in terms of presenting a universe that's so many different things are happening. And generally, science fiction has very utopian ideals in it that as I grew older and matured, I, I realized, you know, hey, why why am I making fun of these people? You know, if I, if I want to have the freedom to live my life, then everyone else has to have the freedom to live their life. You know, that's, that's the only way the equation makes sense. It was more a, a growing and maturing process. But yeah, science fiction definitely, definitely helped with that. Uh, so you're you're probably best known these days for speaking out in favor of marriage equality. Uh, for people who don't know, you want to just explain the story behind that? Sure. Yeah, it was um, the whole fracas, I guess, started when uh, a player for the the Baltimore Ravens, Brendan Imadejo, he recorded a YouTube video, essentially promoting same-sex marriage in Maryland because they had a ballot initiative coming up to legalize same-sex marriage, and um, a delegate, a state delegate from there, Emmett C. Burns Jr. He wrote a letter to the Ravens saying that you need to stifle Brendan's uh, speaking out on this. Football players are only to be seen and not heard, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, he, he was kind of a jerk about it. And I saw his letter on a website. I think it was Pro Football Talk. And um, it made me kind of upset because, first off, you know, when you write a letter like that on official Maryland State stationery and you reference yourself and your constituents, that's a violation of the First Amendment. You can't do that as an elected official. And then secondly, why did he care? Why Why did he want to try to ruin other people's lives when it would never affect him? If you don't want to get married to someone who's gay, then don't marry someone who's gay. It's very simple. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wrote a letter in response that uh, had some choice vulgarities in it that people seem to enjoy, and uh, it went somewhat viral. And, <laughs> and then after that... Uh, yeah, it started having a larger and larger platform because I, I'd been trying to help defeat a ballot amendment in Minnesota that would have banned uh, same-sex marriage. And so it was really cool because then in Maryland, uh, the ballot initiative passed, same-sex marriage was legal. And then in Minnesota, we were able to uh, defeat the amendment there. And then I think it's like eight months later, uh, passed uh, a ballot initiative to, to make same-sex marriage legal in Minnesota as well. I mean, it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, that when you're young, you just kind of pick up these idea, you know, these sort of not always very nice ideas from the people around you. And I can definitely remember when I was a young teenager that I had sort of anti-gay attitudes. And it doesn't even make sense thinking back on it now. But um, I remember one thing that happened that really made me think was I, I read Joe Haldeman's novel, The Forever War. And mm, yeah, that's a good one. And yeah, and, and he, you know, one of the uh, sort of futures he presents is this world where the whole population is engineered, where everyone's gay. And so the, mm -hmm. the heterosexual protagonist, when he arrives in that future, you know, he's sort of the deviant, he's sort of the outcast. And even just a very simple thought experiment like that was enough to make me sort of go like, hey, you know, yeah, is, is it just that, you know, that I think what's familiar is normal and what's unfamiliar is wrong? And is that just sort of an arbitrary thing? Yeah, I, th I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that children don't necessarily have a lot of empathy. You know, as, as a child, you're you're a very selfish being because you're, you know, you want what you want. You're not really that aware of people around you. And so you, you take your social cues of, you know, from your environment around you. And 
if those social cues don't include empathy, if they don't include thinking about other people, about placing yourself in someone else's shoes, then odds are you're probably not going to develop it until, you know, you get an example like the forever war or, you know, seeing someone get bullied or something like that. And so I, I think our responsibility as a society is to be aware of that and, and understand that the more we can nurture, the more we can promote empathy and especially at a young age when children are, you know, still learning, then the better off we're going to be because we will have kids that grow up and understand that, you know, people are different. People live different ways and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I guess, uh, I mean, I would say another thing that happened with me is I just got interested in uh, political philosophy and I was reading stuff like that and um, just the rational arguments against uh, prejudice against uh, gay people, uh, I just found compelling. And I know that you studied history and political science in college. I was just wondering, you know, how that informed your ideas about uh, marriage equality and, um, you know, uh, getting involved in activism and stuff like that. Yeah, that that was one of the things I I really noticed, especially from studying history, is, is the fact that society as a whole, civilization as a whole, has a 100% failure rate. If you look back throughout the years, there's never been a civilization that has withstood the test of time. I mean, we've, we've gotten a couple that have gone, you know, maybe a thousand, maybe 1500 years. So they're past any individual human lifespan. But if you look at things on a geologic time frame, that is less than an eye blink. I mean, you know, we might as well still not even be existing. And really, to me, it boils down to why do we keep ending up in the same place, you know, over and over and over again? And and for me, it really is due to a lack of empathy. You, you look at all these societies and every single time it's conflict that brings them down, whether it's conflict promoted from within by oppressing members of their own society or conflict from without when they seek to take something from someone else and eventually get into a fight they can't win. So if we want to change that endpoint then we need to figure out, okay, how do we stop making the same mistakes over and over and over again? And if we learn that treating other people the way you'd like to be treated, really that kind of balances things out because, you know, you wouldn't do something to someone else that you wouldn't want done to you. Well, a lot of nastiness goes away in the world. Uh, I also thought it was funny. I mean, you mentioned that your letter to Representative Burns contained all these colorful insults. And I heard you say that you sort of honed your skills at that on the World of Warcraft message boards. Uh, and so I was just wondering, sort of, what sort of, do you have any uh, sort of memorable arguments that you've had with people uh, on the World of Warcraft message boards? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had quite a few. It was uh, most of the time I would wait for someone to do the whole, uh, you know, oh, you know, all WoW players are sweaty nerds who live in their parents' basements. They'd be like, wait a minute, I'm a professional football player. <laughs> <laughs> Just start messing with them. And um, th- there was there's another one that uh, was pretty funny. It was some guy was, was obviously trolling and he um, you know, he's talking about the 9-11 truther stuff. And <laughs> I was just going back and forth with them. Like, your arguments are clearly irrational. They're not logical. They don't make any sense. <laughs> and it was uh, it was very entertaining. It was a good way to pass the time. Uh-huh. And so sort of your colorful insults, like the, the from understand and stuff like that, are those things you picked up on those boards or did those just pop into your head? Uh, 
Yeah, those those particular ones I didn't pick up. It's more a stylistic thing that I developed because I realized very quickly on that in, in a message board forum, especially one like the WoW Realm forums where there's a ton of people posting you know, every day, that if you want your message to be heard, you have to develop a way so people pay attention. And the way that I found it worked was to make rational, logical arguments and then also include highly creative swearing along with them. Because what happened is people would remember the insults and they would laugh, but then when they thought back on the insult, it would trigger the argument that I was trying to make. So it, it, you know, it's sort of a association thing where you know, if you can get people's minds to latch onto something, we'll have a much better chance of them remembering the other parts that you're trying to, to put forth. Uh, so, you know, recently you've been, uh, you've been playing around with the Google Glass uh, on the football field. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, I was I was fortunate enough to get a a pair of, of glass um, from the, the kind people at Google, and uh, it's really cool. It's primarily I've been using it to to get a first person view um, of what it's like to actually be on the football field. And up to this point, people don't know what that's like. They've never been able to see it because there's never been a camera that's fit underneath the helmet. So people are are really excited about it, and you know. They want to see it on players other than a punter because <laughs> we, <laughs> with, with all due respect to punting, it's not exactly the most glamorous position. You know, if, if it was on a running back or a quarterback or a linebacker, then mm-hmm. that's really what people want to see. And, and I think that's where we're going to end up heading is, is when you watch a football game or you watch a baseball game or you watch a hockey game, not only are you watching the action from the traditional camera view from, from above and to the side so you can get kind of the sense of the entire play, you'll also be able to click down to individual players. So if, if, if Adrian Peterson breaks off a big run on the replay, you can tap on his icon, and all of a sudden you see that run from his perspective. Mm. And I mean, who, who wouldn't want to watch mm-hmm. that? So they let you actually wear that on the field? Um, I've gotten to wear it during practice kind of off to the mm-hmm. side. I still haven't convinced my coaches to, to let me wear it during an actual like drill period. And mm-hmm. my, my goal is to wear it during a preseason game, but I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm going to be able to swing that. <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. uh, the, the NFL is, is remarkably hidebound in, in many respects. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see if I'm able to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is there anywhere that people can go to see any of the footage that you shot, like of, of you wearing it and like punting or anything like that? Oh, sure. Yeah, just Google uh, YouTube Cluey um, class videos. Uh, that, that should bring up all of them. I have a YouTube channel. It's uh, mm-hmm. L-O-A-T-E. Or no, it's no Chris Cluey. I, mean, I don't know. It's somewhere on there. Just Google Cluey class <laughs> videos, something like that. It'll be on there. <laughs> yeah. Use your Google Foo. You should be developing that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, but, I mean, speaking of uh, Google Glass on the field, uh, if you were going to imagine the science fiction story about the NFL of the future, what sort of changes do you think we might expect to see? Um, I think for the most part, it will be pretty much the same game that we've seen for the past hundred years, extending up to the next hundred years. What you're going to see is the difference in technology with how plays are related and how fans experience the game. Because the first step is kind of what I just described, where you have the cameras in the helmet and people are actually able to get that first person view of whoever their favorite player is. The next step is that every player has a clear plastic face mask and now you can display information inside the helmet. Now, now you're moving towards more actual augmented reality in that if you're a quarterback looking down the field, say your receiver's open, maybe he blinks green really quick. Or if you're a linebacker, the you know, the hole blinks red, you gotta go fill it. 
Or if you're running back to the huddle after the play's over, the next play is flashing up on your visor. So now you don't have to worry about missing your assignment. You can just focus on, okay, here's what I have to do. So really the, the possibilities are endless almost in that you now have another layer of information that you can display on top of what's already there. And once players get used to it, it will allow them to do you know quite a bit more quicker because the NFL is, is based on, you know, who can get that edge, who can get that percentage point more than the other guy because that's what wins games. I guess, I mean, in science fiction, I think there's this tendency to depict future sports as increasingly violent uh, just because that's more dramatic. But it seems that to me that in real life, there's been this tendency that there's there's been more and more awareness of the toll that contact sports uh, take on the players. And I just wonder that if, if in the future there will be increasing pressure to make the sports safer and less damaging to the players? Um, that really depends on society as a whole. I mean, right now, you know, as, as a society, we've shown that we value the entertainment value of football more than we value people, you know, the guys that play it having useful lives once they're done playing. Because, you know, the, the NFL can say you know, they're, they're promoting safety all they want. They can, you know, find guys for, for helmet-to-helmet hits or whatever. But the reality of football is, is that it's a violent game. You can't take that out of the game because it's about large men running into each other. I mean, there's, there's no way to pad the inside of someone's head. You, you'll never be able to prevent concussions from happening. Uh, granted, unless you develop, like, robot bodies or something like that. But it's probably a couple of years off. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, really, it, it's up to us as a society to say, what do we value? Do we value the entertainment aspect of this or do we value the potential long-term harm that comes to the guys who play it? And, you know, that's not for me to answer as an individual. You know, that, that's for all of us to answer collectively because if enough people say that, no, we, we don't want to value that anymore, you know, then revenues for football will go down. I thought it was interesting that, you know, even though you're a football player, just in interviews, I get the sense that you have sort of mixed feelings about the sport, that you said you never really watched it growing up and that, you, you know, you think the players are really overpaid and that people, you know, other professions are a lot more important. You know, I, I had this, um, this experience. I went to USC for a grad school and there was this one evening, they had a, an event on campus where one of the women who had been on the cover of Time magazine for being one of the Enron whistleblowers was speaking on campus. And there were only, you know, like 20 people in the audience in this huge auditorium. And I was really disappointed. And then the next day, you know, I, I'm walking by there and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are streaming out of the football stadium. And it just seems like there's this huge, um, you know, disproportion to how much attention people pay to football as opposed to how much they pay to things like the Enron scandal. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, and, and again, that gets down to what does society value? You know, do, we, do we value a king or do we value actual things that are happening in the real world? Right now, it's you know it's not great to say, but we value entertainment more than we value actual things happening in the world. I mean, you just look at the numbers. There, you you can't argue the fact. And so, until we as a society decide that we are going to value long-term consequences more than short-term benefits, because you know football is entertainment. It's a short-term benefit. It's a way to forget about your life for a couple of moments. When you look at stuff like, you know, whistleblowers and, and scandals and, and corrupt government officials and things like that, those are long-term consequences. That is telling you that the system is not stable, that something is going wrong within our, our system of, of society. And if we don't fix that, if we continue to focus on the bread and circuses, 
Well, we know where that ends up. I thought it was interesting in in uh, an event I saw you say that your favorite novel is Ender's Game, and I'm, as I'm, as you know, uh, Orson Scott Card has been an outspoken opponent of marriage equality, and I'm just wondering, like, what are your feelings about like loving that book, but uh, objecting to the author's yeah, politics? Yeah, for for me, that that's what really sucks is that I don't understand how you can write such a great book on the meaning of empathy, on understanding and loving you know, another, another species. And yet at the same time, not carry those lessons over to your actual life. I mean, it really, it really just baffles me that Card wrote this, you know, really great novel and then just ignored everything he was writing about. I mean, I don't, I don't get the cognitive dissonance that that requires in order to have that worldview. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go see the new Ender's Game movie as, as much as, you know, it'll, it'll probably be a cool science fiction movie because, I don't feel that I should be supporting a a person who is actively working to harm our society. I mean, he he's promoting conflict within our society and he uses the money, you know, from the books and from the, the movie to promote organizations like NOM and, you know, say, no, we need to keep people down. So whenever I talk to people about Ender's Game, I say, yeah, it's my favorite book. I, I love the message within it. Find a way to read it that doesn't require you paying Orson Scott Card. Either, you know, borrow it from a friend, go look at it at your library, you know, look at the message it contains, but don't support what Card is supporting because that is ultimately self-destructive. Uh, so what what are some of your other uh, all-time favorite science fiction and fantasy books? Um, I really like pretty much everything by uh, by Ian Banks. He's, uh, he, was, he was an amazing writer, and I'm really sad that he passed away because I would have loved to see more, more culture novels from him. Um, uh, Ellie Modesty Jr., or Ellie Modesset Jr., I still have no idea how to pronounce his name. Um, <laughs> he, he writes really good books, a lot of them dealing with uh, kind of this idea of duality, of you know, fanaticism in either form is bad, and aware that the world is, is a complex place. Um, really like uh, Brandon Sanderson. He writes excellent fantasy. Um, let's see who else? Uh, Jim Butcher is very good. Uh, David Weber is great for space opera. He, he does the, the Honor Harrington series. Um, I mean, pretty uh, Robert Jordan, obviously. George R. R. Martin's good, although books four and five were not that great. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, I, I have a very full bookshelf of, uh, like I said, pretty much almost every science fiction fantasy book that, that's come out. <laughs> What would be uh, some of your favorite culture novels? Culture novels, I really like um, On the Use of Weapons and uh, Player of Games. Th- those are the two that I recommend to people that are, you know, first starting out with culture. And uh, the cool thing is, is you know, they, they're all set in the same universe, but you can read them individually because, you know, they're all, they're all kind of their own separate stories. Um, I started with Matter, which took me a little bit to get into. Because at first, I was like, wait, what is going on in this book? There's, there's a medieval sword battle, and wait, there's a drone? Wait, what? <laughs> but I'm, I'm really glad I persisted with it, because it was, it was definitely worth the read. And you know, then I read the rest of his stuff. I'm like, this, this guy was amazing. So yeah, definitely uh, player of games and on the use of weapons. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, do you... Do you uh generally finish everything you read or do you ever abandon books like that are just not doing it for you um i generally finish everything i I read because before i buy a book i'll read the first couple chapters in the bookstore and that will tell me right away whether or not it's worth you know pursuing the book 
the the only book that I really had to force myself to read and finish, and I did not enjoy it at all, was Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. <laughs> that one, that was awful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you've actually described it as sociopathic, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, and and really, the tragic part is is that she had some pretty good ideas, except she forgot that key little ingredient called empathy, which is if you have an entire world of people who are only looking out for themselves, you have a world of sociopaths, and that doesn't work because they're all looking out for themselves. And there's certain things that we have to have other people help us with. That's the definition of a society, is a group of people working together. So. It's uh yeah it's un- it's unfortunate that she didn't take that next step and um you know it's hopefully people that read Atlas Shrugged and think it's the greatest thing ever grow out of that phase at some point in their lives because it's uh it's really not <laughs> it's a terrible way to live. Uh, I mean, how do you find new fantasy and science fiction books to read? Do you follow websites or podcasts or do you just browse the bookstores or what? Uh, pretty much just go to Barnes and Noble once a month and um, see what's on the new releases section. Well, and speaking of new releases, you want to tell us about your new book, Beautifully Unique Sparkle Ponies? Sure, yeah. It's a, it's a collection of short stories and essays, mainly dealing with the idea of rational empathy, the, uh, the idea that I talked about before that societies that don't practice empathy inevitably collapse. And as a species, we need to understand that if we want to survive as a species, we need to figure out how to make that happen because species ending extinction events happen pretty regularly on the geologic time frame. And until we get off the planet Earth, we are at the mercy of whatever happens to come our way. So, you know, again, if we want to survive long term, if we want to, you know, actually explore our galaxy and, and find out all the things out there, then we need to be thinking more than just what's on this planet. We need to be thinking about how do we get off this planet? How do we sustainably, you know, spread out into the rest of our solar system and then from there into the rest of our galaxy? Because, and um, there, there's also funny stuff in there. There's there's entertaining things. Uh, I write my own eulogy and it includes a drinking game. And, uh, you know, I tried to have it be a, a mix of, of various topics. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because, I mean, there's autobiographical sketches, there's speculations about the future, there's little pieces of fiction, uh, political essays. I mean, how did you just, uh, did you know the format when you sat down to write it, or did that evolve organically as you were, as you started writing? Well, I knew that I wanted it to be short-form pieces, because that was what I felt comfortable writing at the time, you know, kind of like around 1,500 to 2,500 words. That was uh, that was where I felt that I could really kind of deliver a message, and it also let me explore a bunch of different stuff. And then the other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to make sure it wasn't the standard football autobiography. Mm-hmm. That's what everyone does. <laughs> and and for me, I was like, that's not what I want to do because I, you know, first off, I haven't finished playing football. And second off, that's what everyone does. So I, I described it to the, you know, when, when I talked to the publishers, I was like, look, I want this to be, you know, almost a snapshot into my mind. You know, this this is all the stuff that I think about on a daily basis. These are the things I've noticed in the world. And, you know, it's going to be a lot of different stuff. There, it's going to cover a lot of ground, and I'm not going to do the, you know, yes, I was born here, and then I played high school football here, and I played the NFL here, and hooray. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's it's not your standard football book. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, some of the political essays are on very hot-button issues like gun control, and they don't pull any punches at all. 
Uh, I'm just wondering what sort of reactions have you gotten, like say to the gun control piece or, or some of the other ones? Well, it's, it's been really good. Um, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people who need to read the gun control piece probably will read the gun control piece. <laughs> so, may, mainly it's been people that, that agree with it. And um, really my, my, main, my main point with that one is the fact that you know, we, we have to be able to have a discussion about gun control in this country, and, and we can't. We, we have fanatics so dug in on both sides of the argument that we can't even talk about the fact that Yes, guns are useful in certain circumstances, and in other certain circumstances, they kill a lot of people very, very quickly. So it's something that, as a society, we need to be able to have that discussion, and we can't have that discussion because you know there's just too much money entrenched on on the side of gun manufacturers. I mean, you, you, I say it in the essay. You can look at the NRA's webpage. They tell you who sponsors them, and it's gun manufacturers. They have a vested interest in selling guns. Yeah, actually, I, I thought it was interesting because you say that, um, I mean, speaking of guns, that you're a big fan of first person shooter games and that you love them, but you have sort of mixed feelings about just the idea of playing games where you're just shooting people all the time and that you think that maybe there should be more consequences for uh, for dying, say, in first person shooters. Could you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, you know, I like I said, I played Counter-Strike growing up. I played Halo, played Call of Duty, um, really enjoyed Borderlands. It's, uh, you know, I. I, I enjoy playing first-person shooters, but as time has gone on, I've noticed that there really isn't a consequence to dying in a first-person shooter. And it could be a great teaching opportunity if there was a consequence to dying in first-person shooters. Because right now, and, and I'm not saying, you know, the people that play first-person shooters are going to go out and shoot a bunch of people. I mean, that's, you know, from all the studies I've seen, there isn't that link between video games and violence. But at the same time, what we can say is that if you have one of these weapons, you know, if you use one of these weapons, there are consequences because there are consequences in real life when that happens. And, you know, my, my, my fear is that we have a lot of kids playing these games and, you know, they, they think that, yeah, we can just run around. They see guns as toys as opposed to dangerous tools. And that's something that we need to be aware of that, you know, if, if we have enough people that see weapons as toys, well, eventually someone's going to use them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I thought it was really interesting because you said, I mean, that maybe just just to have some more consequence to dying in the game that maybe, you know, it would charge you. I mean, you know, a certain, you know, 25 cents or something every time you died. And I, that gave me the idea. I thought it might be interesting if in a game like Call of Duty or something that there was like the ultra hardcore mode where, yeah, that you get charged a little bit of money every time you die and that that money might go to uh, veterans organizations or something. Right, right, right. Exactly. Like go to Wounded Warriors Project or, or you know, a, a PAL MIA program or something like that. Because again, that would make people aware of the fact that you know there there are consequences out there to using weapons. Um, see, I saw you on book tour to promote uh, beautiful unique sparkle ponies. You did this appearance at the Loft Literary Center, and you walked out on stage flanked by a stormtrooper escort. And I was just wondering, how did that come about? <laughs> yeah, that, that was pretty awesome. It was uh, actually I did a um, a local radio show in Minnesota, the uh, the nine three X half ass morning show, and um, I guess they had gotten an email from someone who was the you know kind of the local stormtrooper representative. He's like, hey, if you know if Chris wants an escort for his for his appearance, then we have to give him one. And I, I'm pretty good friends with the hosts there, and, and they passed it along to me. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's see if we can make it happen. So. Yeah, we got all the uh, the logistics figured out, and I, <laughs> I got to uh, to be Darth Vader for a day. <laughs> and so, like, who were the stormtroopers? Like, were they part of uh, a local club or something? Or 
Yeah, yeah, they're part of a local club. Um, I think they were, oh, shoot, it's, it's going to kill me. I want to say they were like the 501st Legion. Um, mm-hmm. they, they've done a lot of cons and, you know, appeared at a lot of places. And, uh, yeah, they were, they were really cool. You know, it's, uh, I posed for a couple pictures with the uh, Stormtrooper helmet on. And, you know, I, I understand now why the Stormtroopers couldn't shoot because <laughs> they can't see. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, and we, you know, we mentioned that you own your own tabletop gaming store called Mercenary Market. You want to tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, it's it's located in uh, Costa Mesa, and it's um, primarily for tabletop games uh, like War Machine, Warhammer. Um, we have Malifaux Nights. Uh, we also do uh, like D and D nights. You know, whatever whatever board games you want to play. Uh, Magic the Gathering. We have Friday Night Magic. And, you know, really, it's, it's just a place for, for people to come down, play games, um, you know, hopefully buy some miniatures so the store stays afloat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just uh, the, the local gaming store that, you know, you, it, it's hard to find those in certain areas. And, you know, in Southern California, where, where I'm at, there really isn't one very close by to Orange County. So my, my brother's friend and I and, and my brother, we, you know, we got together and said, hey, let's see if we can make this happen. And, uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to have the local gaming store there and, and hopefully it's something I can do after football. So, I mean, if, if, if we have listeners in the area, can they just like stop by any time and pick up a game or should they go to a website and sign up or how does that work? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think Google mercenary market <laughs> that should probably bring it up. Um, I'm generally not there because I'm in the football season, but <laughs> during during the off season, I'll I'll pop in occasionally. Although I I have to do stuff with my wife and children as well, otherwise they get upset. But uh, yeah, any any time except uh, we're closed on Mondays because generally that's you know kind of the, the slow business day for uh, for gaming stores. But yeah, I mean we we run Friday night magic. We have um, I think Thursdays uh, War Machine night. Uh, Wednesdays, I want to say the D and D and board game night, and then Saturdays and Sundays, um, you know, whatever you want to play. I think we're, you know, we have pretty big uh, war machine crowds there on those days as well. So, yeah, just swing on by on any day except for Monday. And um, generally, my brother is running the store, and he will be happy to help you. Uh, in other gaming, uh, in other gaming news, uh, I heard that there's a character in XCOM who's named after you. Yes, yes, it's actually it's actually me. I'm a hidden character in XCOM. Um, <laughs> I think you enter my name, and uh, and and then you you get my character. It's, I I got into the game by defeating the game's uh, developer Garth DeAngelis in a uh, best of three match. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. Hmm. Uh, and actually, you were just saying before, uh, as we were chatting before the show here, uh, you you mentioned that there's a character named after you in the new Shadowrun game too, right? Yes, yes, I'm, I'm trying to spread myself across all sorts of video games. It's, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I backed it um, when they were doing their Kickstarter. I backed it at the uh, the MPC level, and you know, Hairbrain Games—they were great about it. They, you know, they sent me an email. They're like, "Hey, you know, what do you want Eric to look like? Send us a photo. Um, you know, where, you know, what, what were your ideas?" And it was, yeah, it was just really cool to, you know, download the game the the night it came out and go through it, and I'm like, all of a sudden, it's like, "Whoa, that's that's me right there. That's pretty awesome." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and so, you know, I, I lost several years of my life to a rock band and Guitar Hero, so uh, uh, it, it amused me to learn that uh, playing Guitar Hero actually inspired you to start a real band. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I got really, really good at Guitar Hero. <laughs> it, uh, I, I played against the uh, Guinness World Record holder um, at the time. He lived in uh, Rochester, Minnesota, and we um, there was this charity event that Activision had put on, and uh, we were both there, so... We played, uh, we played best of five, and uh, I, I won two, which I figured that, okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> so, 
it was uh, I think it was right around Guitar Hero World Tour. I want to say that uh, I unlocked an achievement that said buy a real guitar already, and hmm. I was like, well, I should probably buy a real guitar already. <laughs> so yeah, took some lessons and um, yeah, formed a band with. Uh, my good friend in Minnesota, uh, Andy Reiner, he's the executive editor of Game Informer, so we, we both mm. really love video games. And um, yeah, Tripping Icarus was born, and, and we've been playing as a band, I think, for the past like five years or so. What kind of music do you play? Uh, alternative rock. It's um, we're we're all big fans of like kind of the uh, '90s grunge era type music, so like um, Soundgarden, Tool, uh, Rage Against the Machine, Nirvana, Audio Slave, just that that genre of of rock and i think what appeals to me the most about that is that it's music that also has a message you know it's it's talking about stuff it's it's talking about problems in the world and you know songs can be great just for their musical value but they can also say something if you want them to and yeah i, I think that's something that we try to do with our music could you maybe uh, give an example some examples of some of your songs and what sorts of issues they deal with yeah, so a lot of them, a lot of them deal with um, uh, economic inequity. You know, the the fact that you know, there there are people who are making literally millions of dollars while you know children are starving and you know people can't find jobs and really how much more money do you need to to enjoy your life when all these other people are suffering and then stuff like with um, with our current president uh, President Obama. You know, the the fact that he he ran on a platform of you know, changing the excesses of the Bush regime. And now we're responsible for what hundreds of casualties from drone strikes. And there's more going on every day. And, you know, we're, we, we have this nebulous war on terror that doesn't really have a defined end. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, bringing, trying to bring attention to, to issues that, you know, are a lot of the same issues I talk about in my book and, you know, really issues that I, I would hope a lot of people understand that they phrase the fabric of society. You know, they, they promote conflict. Again, they, they cause us to fight either against each other or against other people. And historically, like I said, that doesn't end in any way other than the downfall of the civilization involved. Yeah, so I also heard that you're working on your own science fiction trilogy. Uh, is there anything you want to tell us about that? We're, we're shopping it to uh, publishers right now to, you know, see, see if anyone wants to pick it up. Uh, it's me and Andy, uh, the guitarist in my band. It's a trilogy. We've we've written the first book. We're currently working on the second one, and you know we we know where the story arc goes through the second and third ones. And uh, I like to describe it as uh, it starts off Jurassic Park kind of, and then ends Ian Banks culture-ish. And it's really funny how the the science fiction trilogy started because. Uh, we were both huge fans of those terrible Siffy movies, you know, like Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus, uh, Crocagator, you know, Giant Python or Piranaconda, you know? <laughs> all the awful ones. Yeah. And so about a year ago, we were uh, we were sitting around and I, I saw, you know, one of the first previews for Sharknado, you know, back when they were first announcing it. And so we were talking to each other and we're like, how hard can it be to write the plot to a movie like that? Like, it can't be that hard. I mean, it's got to be just three or four guys getting absolutely hammered and then throwing something down in like two and a half hours. So we started brainstorming ideas back and forth. Like, we should write a terrible shark movie. This will be amazing. You know, it'll be great. And so we started throwing ideas back and forth. And probably about 15, 20 minutes later, we had the the structure of this really cool universe and, you know, a a, a neat economic and, and, societal and government system and and we were like 
why are we wasting this on a terrible shark movie? We should we should write an actual science fiction book. <laughs> so then after that, we just started brainstorming. Like, yep, we have something here. We could we could definitely write this. And then from there, we started writing. So do you have an awesome title in mind, like Sharknado or Man Mansquito or something? <laughs> so the uh, the the working title for the book, and it caused my literary agent some consternation when I originally sent it to him was uh, Sharkbird. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, needless to say, it won't be called Sharkbird, but that was that was the uh, the genesis of the idea. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. And then just uh, finally, are there any other projects or activities that you're up to that you want to mention? Um, not really. I, I think that covered just about <laughs> all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure if anything else comes along though, I'll uh I'll I'll probably tweet about it. <laughs> All right, cool. So I think we're gonna wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Chris Cluey. The book is called Beautifully Unique Sparkle Ponies. So uh Chris, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Chris Cluey for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, our panel today will be sports and science fiction. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Douglas Cohen, making his fifth appearance on the show. He's the former editor of Realms of Fantasy magazine, and together with John, he co-edited the book Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Interzone, Weird Tales in Space and Time, and he now offers editorial feedback to aspiring writers via his website at douglascohaneditorial.com. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be back, guys. All right, and so before we start talking about imaginary sports, I thought maybe we should just talk a little bit about real sports, give people a sense of how big sports fans we are or are not. And so, uh, Doug, why don't you go first and just talk a little bit about what sports have you been into, do you watch, have you played, stuff like that? Yeah, no problem. Uh, I think of the three of us, it's safe to say that I'm the biggest sports fan here. I'm a rabid NFL fan for geeks, uh, let's say... You know, on par with George R. R. Martin. <laughs> I live and die with the New York Giants. I follow some baseball here and there. I follow basketball here and there. Uh, and I like the big boxing matches. So I definitely get my share in. I like to play basketball, even though I'm not very good. And, you know, as a kid, I played, you know, soccer. I played baseball. I think that about covers it. All right, cool. And John? Yeah, I, I played a lot of sports when I was growing up. I, I never played anything uh, organized. Like, I was never on a team at school or anything like that. But uh, I played a lot of basketball. I mean, when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be in the NBA someday. You know, I, that was a dream of mine. I, I, I was I was okay. I don't I mean, because I never played organized sports, I don't know how good I was really. But I mean, I used to go down and play pickup games and I could I could shoot pretty well. Uh, so, I mean, I was really into basketball and I, and when I was in high school, I also spent tons of time watching basketball games. Like I'd watch the NBA playoffs, like almost every game. Um, I also got very heavily into NFL football and I've always been a fan of pro sports more, more so than like college sports and whatnot. But, um, I, I, am a pretty big uh, NFL fan, although uh, my interest in all sports altogether basically has waned a, a bit as I've gotten older and when I got married and everything it's you know you have less time to watch that kind of stuff um but you know I used to play all the the John Madden uh video games and everything like I remember there was a year where I mean I I played the hell out of that that edition of Madden and you know I made the custom teams and all that kind of stuff so yeah I mean I've, I I had I do have a long history with sports all right and uh, I've always found spectator sports incredibly boring 
And uh, just to give you a, an example, when I was about four years old, my best friend Adam was a big Yankees fan. And so he told me his favorite team was the Yankees. So then I'm like, well, my favorite team's the Yankees too. And so his parents took us to a Yankees game. And so I show up, I'm all excited to watch the Yankees, my favorite team. And then the game starts and like instantly I'm like, what is, like, what is this? Like, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait, is, how, how much longer is this going to last? And his dad's like, oh, just six hours, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, oh, I'm like, how, how, how much longer now? You know, and he's like, just this, the game's going to last a, a lot longer. Just relax. And I'm like, oh, how much longer now? <laughs> and like, I just whined and whined and whined. And finally, I think they, they held out until the seventh inning stretch. And then they, they left. We left in the, you know, we left in the middle of the game because I was whining so much. And that's basically been my history with spectator sports ever since. Sometimes, like, just to be social, sometimes I'll sit through the first half of a game, but I almost never make it through an entire game. Sometimes, you know, usually at halftime, I'll go get my computer and surf on the web. But yeah, just watching sports, I've always found really boring. I did play some sports, you know, um, when I was in high school, I, uh, <laughs> Uh, there was this like really nasty gang of juvenile delinquents, uh, and uh, who were sort of bullies. And one of them attacked me in technical drawing class because he didn't like my face. And after that, I started punching. You know, I got a punching bag and trained with that, and I started lifting weights like every single day after school. And I, and fortunately, I had the good sense to grow a foot and a half that year. So you know, then I was like, I was the height I am now. I'm six two, and then I, I was working out so much. I, was, I by that point, I was one of the biggest, strongest kids in my class. And so then my, you know, I got sort of um, encouraged to join the lacrosse team because they wanted big, strong kids to be defensemen. And uh, I was never particularly good. I almost, but I, I got, I, I trained really hard. I got pretty good. I think I would have started senior year, uh, but one of the kids had a little brother who was just better than I was. And so junior year, I was just like, all right, I, I could see I wasn't going to start senior year. And at that point, I was just like, all right, I'm done with this. Uh, and I played... Uh, rugby for a semester in college and roller hockey for a semester um and then after i was out of college i was like all right i can stop pretending to like sports anymore because <laughs> you know now nobody cares yeah dave so you know the the way to enjoy sports if you're forced to endure them is to bring a book seriously because like baseball you could read a whole book while you watch a baseball game just because there's so much dead time between <laughs> all the plays and the same thing with football, too. Like, the only thing it doesn't really work with is basketball. But I've read whole books, honestly. Like, when I would just sit and watch football, like, all day Sunday. Like, I'd watch the early game and the late game. I just read a whole book during the whole time. Because it's like, you're watching for, like, 10 seconds. And then you're waiting for 30 seconds in between every play. And then there's pausing for uh, timeouts and official, you know, when there's a penalty. And then there's commercials and everything. So you can get a lot of reading done that way. It actually keeps me on task better. <laughs> if I'm doing that, because it distracts me. It gives me that distraction. Whereas if I'm just reading, I'm just working, uh, I get distracted by the internet, and then that, that's an unending pit. Uh, whereas with football, it's like, okay, I got, I, I have a, a break for 30 seconds, and then I'm going to get back to it, you know? Uh, I'll say the one the one sport I watch the most of, probably because my dad likes it, is soccer. And so what I do, like my sort of geeky approach to soccer, the pro like soccer is actually kind of interesting if it's a high-scoring game, but the problem is like 90% of <laughs> so soccer games, there's no scoring whatsoever, and so it's super, super boring. But so what I do like, is I just like go, you know, because we had um, ESPN 360, whatever. So you can watch soccer games from all over the world. So I just go through the scores for like 100 games and find the highest scoring soccer games that have happened anywhere in the world in the last mm. week and then watch those. And a 5-4 soccer game is actually, you know, pretty entertaining to watch. Oh, I guess semi-related to what we're discussing now. In the past two years, I've also finally started playing fantasy football. Um, 
I don't know, for our audience, should I explain what that is? I'm sure people know what fantasy football is, but go ahead and give us a little brief capsule. On the other hand, I will say that that is possibly the most geekiest thing that we've ever talked about on this show. (laughs) All right. The very brief version is, you know, like the hardcore sports fans, we all want to believe that we can be the general manager of a team. That's the guy that drafts people, the guy that signs people, the guy that trades people. So basically everyone puts a little bit of money into the pot. And that you have a draft day and you take various players and there's different formats depending on the league. And, you know, uh, you have scoring formats for each league also. And each week, uh, you know, depending on how that player does in the real game, you get a score. And, you know, you have an opponent and you play all the opponents in the league over the course of the year. And toward the end of the year, uh, the final few, few weeks of the regular season are the playoffs in your league for fantasy football and the winners can, you know, get the main part of the pot. Yeah. I've heard, uh, fantasy football described as it's dungeons and dragons for people <laughs> who used to beat up people who play dungeons and dragons. Yeah, no, honestly, it's funny because, you know, in a lot of ways, jocks and geeks are sort of diametrically opposed, but yeah, fantasy football. Oh my God. That is really like, it really feels to me like one of the geekiest things ever. <laughs> um, and I mean, and I'm into tons of geeky stuff, obviously, but, and, and, and I'm into football. I, I, but I never crossed that bridge. It's just like, it was a bridge too far for me. <laughs> and I don't mean to denigrate fantasy football at all. If, if you enjoy it, great. Like whatever. I'm, I'm happy for everyone to enjoy whatever geeky activity they want. Um, or any non geeky activity for that matter. But, uh, yeah, just, uh, it was never, it was never something that I could see myself devoting time to. All right. Cool. So let's talk about some speculative sports stories. And so, uh, just, uh, going through our list, I, I feel like you can divide sports stories into three general categories that I have here, right? So the first kind is sports that we could do now, but just nobody does, uh, often because they involve a degree of violence that we would find uh, unacceptable. So stuff like Rollerball or The Long Walk, the Stephen King short story. Um, and then the second category is things that could happen in a science fictional sense, but they require some technology or some, you know, practical thing that we don't have yet. So like robot boxing or zero gravity football or something like that. And then the third category is just sort of basically fantasy stories uh, uh, that could not happen. Uh, So like Teen Wolf, where you turn into a werewolf and that makes you really good at basketball, for example. Um, So let's, uh, let's just start out and talk about this first category of sports that could exist, but just don't. Uh, like the first thing that sort of occurred to me um, for this whole panel topic was rollerball, which I had never actually seen before. Um, and so I, I looked it up and there's actually there's two versions. There's the original version from the 70s and there was a recent version from 2002. And the recent version has 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of funny because if it had had like 19%, I don't know if I would have watched it. But when it had, I saw that it had 3%, I was like, all right, this I got to see. <laughs> Uh, has, did, has anyone else watched this? No. I can't say that I have. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, so the premise is that these two guys, uh, two Americans, travel to Kazakhstan, where the hot sport, which is sort of run by the mob, is uh, rollerball, which is kind of like a roller derby, uh, where people also ride motorcycles and sometimes have weapons and stuff like that. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, comp- this, this version of the story is completely incoherent. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's like watching an hour and a half long music video with no music, uh, where it's just like, where you're just like, wait, how do we get here? Like, we're cutting from here to here, and this doesn't make any sense. The, the sort of conflict is that the people running the sport, uh, are constantly watching the ratings in real time. And anytime the ratings drop too low, 
they arrange for a, a player to be seriously injured to drive the ratings back up. And it's just, it makes no sense that, you know, they have to contrive for players to be injured, given it's a contact sport in which some of the people are on motorcycles and some of them aren't, you know, like, but uh, those, those scenes are kind of effective, though, uh, you know, where they're having people, it would be better if they were having people get killed, you know, drive the ratings up. But, uh, but that's really the only good, good thing about the movie. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, obviously 3%. It's, it's, it's terrible from start to finish. Um, did anyone ever see the original Rollerball? Nope. No. All right. Oh, I just went back and I just, I'd never actually seen it either, but I just went and watched it. Uh, so I'll just say quickly, it's, uh, it's substantially better. It's pretty slow, I think, for today's audiences, but it's a legitimate dystopian science fiction story. Mm. You know, uh, the, um, corporations run the world. And so before the games, rather than the national anthem, everyone rises for the playing of the corporate hymn. Uh, so that was kind of cool. But, um, I don't know. So that's, that's rollerball. Uh, you guys have any other ones uh, in this category you want to mention? I mean, there's things like the running man. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there, I'm sure there's some science fictional stuff in there that wouldn't technically be um, possible now. Um, but I mean, just in general, the idea of having a reality show where criminals are pitted against uh, gladiator type things. I mean, we could certainly do that now if we wanted to. Uh, and I mean, that's gotta be my favorite SF uh, sports movie. Um, I mean, if you, if you know, it's sort of a, only tangentially related to sport, but I mean, you know, gladiatorial combat kind of feels like a sport to me. Um, well, there's the hockey, po- there's the hockey goalie guy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, that's 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 our good sports tie there. That's that <laughs> fair. Yeah, the the the, the hockey guy. Um, but uh, so there's that, and then there's also Death Race, and you know, Death Race 2000. I haven't actually seen either the original or that recent remake, but um, yeah, those are those are the only things I could really think of that are possible now, along with the Stephen King, you, you know, with the Long Walk that you mentioned. Yeah, so The Long Walk, uh, for people who haven't read it, this is a Stephen King, I think it's a novelette, uh, and, uh, but you know, that you start out, it's this, uh, you know, there's like 20 guys or something, and there's a course, they're, they're supposed to walk, and you just walk, that's all that happens, and, you know, but then people, you know, they fall from exhaustion or whatever, and every single person who quits is killed, so only one person survives, and that person is the winner, and the people sort of talk to each other as they're walking, you find out what their motivations are, and... You know, they kind of play mind games with each other and uh and it's it's a really, really good story. Uh how about like well John mentioned Death Race two thousand. Have you seen that uh Doug or the remake? I have not. Alright, well I haven't seen Death Race two thousand. It sounds like a uh an interest the premise of the original Death Race two thousand is that they it's a uh a drive across the country and you get points for however many pedestrians you kill along the way. Uh, it's unfortunately it's not on Netflix or iTunes, so I didn't get a chance to watch it. But I did watch the remake starring Jason Statham, which <laughs> bears no resemblance whatsoever, as far as I can tell, to the ah. original movie. So in the remake, it's in a prison, and there's like a um a prison on an island, basically, and there's a course that goes kind of around the perimeter of the island, and and so the convicts race on this course, and they have cars tricked out with uh, machine guns and uh, caltrops and oil slicks and and stuff. And it's actually it's 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 about forty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's uh. It's it's entertaining. I mean, it doesn't uh, transcend the armed car genre, but uh, <laughs> you know, for a for an example of that genre, it's you know, it's pretty pretty entertaining. And I really like Jason Statham. I I, I hope one day he's in an actual legitimately good or stars in an actual legitimately mm-hmm. good movie. I mean, that day has not yet come, as far as I know. But he was, uh, in, he was in Snatch. Yeah, but he didn't. He wasn't really the star of that, though. No, I guess not. No, Snatch is a great movie, but yeah, yeah. but none of the movies that like 
he's the star of right have been, <laughs> that i've ever seen have been good although i really like him um uh, you know while i haven't seen death race or the or the remake uh, i have played this game called carmageddon which is actually basically death race uh but in video game form and that was awesome <laughs> i mean it was i mean it's old now and, and i mean that they should totally bring it out for like consoles or something i played it on a pc back in the day but um i mean it was basically the same situation you know if you run over people you get points for that if, you know you crash into other cars and stuff you get points for that and, and the goal is to you know it's death race i mean it's, it's exactly the same thing it's kind of surprising they didn't get sued or something Carmageddon, I remember, had, from what I remember, it had really terrible graphics, but I liked the fact that every body contained approximately 6,000 pints of blood. <laughs> oh, wait, is that inaccurate? <laughs> Isn't that right? Like, you would just hit something, <laughs> yeah. and it just, like, the whole, like, city block is, like, splattered <laughs> with blood, yeah. Has anyone seen Speed Racer, the Wachowski version? I have not. I didn't like the cartoon as a kid, so <laughs> I felt no compulsion to see the Wachowski version. Yeah, I uh, I haven't seen it either. I you know I was planning to watch it this morning, but then after having watched <laughs> some of these other terrible movies, I just couldn't take another one. I am kind of curious about it. I know Robert Kirkman uh, was raving about it on Twitter one time, and I was like, "Well, really? I, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody uh, really champion that movie like that." But um, he he sure was. Mm-hmm. Um. All right, so let's move on to category number two, which is, uh, you know, sports stories that require some science, you know, some plausible science fictional element. And so, uh, first thing I have here to talk about is Real Steel, the robot boxing movie. Anyone seen that one? Nope. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, come on. Jesus Christ. I, I, I promise you, I've seen other stuff on the list, but <laughs> I, I just, you have a talent so far for picking the ones I haven't seen. All right. Well, Real Steel is, uh, I thought, surprisingly good. Oh. Uh, the uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, the uh, the screenplay is uh, undeniably clunky, but uh, Hugh Jackman is very uh, is fun to watch, and the robots are, are you know are very cool looking. And I don't know, I enjoyed it. I had, I had a good time watching it. It's actually it's based on a uh, Twilight Zone, an old Twilight Zone episode. Mm. Uh, that may have been written actually by Richard Matheson. I'm yeah, sure. that sounds right. I think you're. I think that's right. Um, and it's funny because in the original Twilight Zone episode, uh, the premise in the original Twilight Zone episode is that human boxers have all been replaced by robot boxers. But the robot boxers look basically they're basically human size. They just kind of look like uh, look look like people. And so the main character he really really wants to box, and so he, as I remember it anyway, he just sort of dresses himself up to look more like a robot and enters the ring. But then in the remake, the the robots are like twenty feet tall. So I was wondering, like, if they were gonna. <laughs> I was like, man, if this guy, if Hugh Jackman gets in the ring with one of these things, this is gonna this is gonna get ugly. But mm-hmm. they took it in a, in a different direction. All right, so cool. So Doug, what's one? What what's a movie in this category that you have seen? Okay, I have seen uh, Tron, which uh, I think it definitely qualifies because while it's a video game once you're inside it feels like death sports uh usually in racing form mm-hmm. um well i guess that that brings up the issue of just like sports within a virtual environment and um you know there's this whole like esports movement right now um does anyone watch any esports or would you watch any esports um, I don't personally. Uh, I I could see getting into it, but uh, I haven't actually really looked into it too much to investigate. Um, I did watch that uh, 
reality show King of the Nerds, and somebody who won that actually was a pro gamer. Um, and just hearing them talk about it on the show did get me sort of interested in it to see what it was really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it seems like the like the ones they mostly play, it seems like are sort of StarCraft, mm. like something like Street Fighter 4 or something, or it's like a first-person shooter. Um, and uh, I have like zero interest in watching <laughs> StarCraft. I've never been into real-time strategy games really at all. Um, I could see, I could, ha- I could see having a good time watching this like Street Fighter type, Street Fighter 4 or something. Mm-hmm. Or a first-person shooter. I think that they would have to. I mean, the problem with most uh, first-person shooters now is that they're just like people running around and rocket jumping and shooting people, and people are just dying left and right. And there's not really any uh, variation. You know, it's just like nonstop guns blazing action. And I think it would be a lot more interesting to me if there was some sort of more simulated uh, environment. You know, I just watched that movie, which was not very good. Um, uh, White House. Oh no, mm. Olympi- Olympus. Olympus. The, the other one. Olympus is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and like if, if you set up a situation like that in a, you know, in a video game kind of environment, right. Where, you know, you have like the white house has been attacked and there's like secret service agents versus, uh, terrorists. And, you know, when you die, you're out of the game and it's all completely realistic and, it, you know, and it's all taking place in a video game, but, you know, you, you actually could sort of see how that kind of um, scenario might play out in real life. Uh, I would watch that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can I jump in here? Uh, just like the Tron one was really like a bad example for me for this category, but I have a better one right. where I have seen it, which is Dom Jot in Star Trek, which is kind of like pool. Uh, but you know, just a couple of variations with the magnetics and the bouncing. We could totally jerry rig something now if we wanted to, if we knew the rules and we could play Dom Jot. Yeah, you know, you know, there's the famous saying in science fiction, like uh, calling a rabbit a smurp, which is the <laughs> practice of taking a regular creature and giving it a fancy name in a science fiction story. And it's like add a third ear to it or whatever. And it's like, oh, that's a smurf. That's not a rabbit. Um, but there's <laughs> there's basically the sort of equivalent in science fiction referring to sports like Domjot is uh, the smurf version of pool. Basically, it's like, you know, there's no real significant difference as far as I can tell. And I mean, who, who the hell knows how you actually play it? But um, I mean, it's fine. Uh, it, it's 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 a cool word for the Nausicaan, the scary Nausicaan to say, like when he says, like, play dumb job human, you know, and it's like it, it works well. It's better than like play pool human. You know, it's like it just sounds cooler. But, you know, it's, for all intents and purposes, it's 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 pool. Uh, but Star Trek actually has a bunch of other games. Um, one of the most notable, I would think, at least to me, when I was looking through the list of them, is Parisi's Squares. Uh, that's another one that it's like, <laughs> dude, good luck trying to figure out how that works. Like, if we had Eugene on, Eugene Myers, who's one of our <laughs> previous guest geeks, he, I'm sure he could tell you how Parisi's Squares works. I have no idea. I was looking it up, and I was like, I can't even really, it doesn't make enough sense to me that I could try to explain it to anybody. <laughs> but I mean, it's like, it's, it seems to be violent and uh, they wear face shields sometimes that make them blind for some reason. And there's some sort of sticks where they fight each other, sort of like uh, American gladiators with those big giant Q-tip things. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird looking sport, but um, yeah, they play it a lot on, in, in the future. So I, I guess it's going to be all the rage in, uh, you know, 200 years or whatever. That's that's the Federation people they play that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was actually wondering if the people in Star the Star Trek people, they're too enlightened to have violent sports <laughs> anymore. But I guess not. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, they, they definitely make a point of talking about how violent it is sometimes because, like, uh, young people are discouraged from playing it because, you know, they could get seriously hurt and, and whatnot. Uh, there's also, I mean, there's Pyramid from Battlestar Galactica. I mean... Uh, I, there's not much to say about that one either. It's kind of like basketball or something. 
Um, and apparently in the original series, the game was called Triad, and then Pyramid is a poker-like card game. But in the in the remake, the the Ron Moore you know recent remake of Battlestar Galactica, uh, uh, Pyramid is is the sport, and it's 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 some sort of it looks like some sort of version of basketball, but it's like complicated and futuristic. You know, one thing that occurs to me for like what you can and can't potentially play in the future is if you factor in virtual reality. When that gets to a certain point, some of these things where we say, "Oh, you can never play that." Well, maybe you could in a virtual reality setting. Like, I can't even begin to imagine the logistics involved if you actually wanted to play Quidditch from Harry Potter. But if you had sufficiently advanced virtual reality, you might be able to fool your brain into thinking you're actually playing Quidditch. Well, people people do play Quidditch, though. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a popular sport, Doug. <laughs> oh, yeah, so there are people flying around on broomsticks. I got to get in on. Well, that, it's man. a it's a modified version of Quidditch for sure. Um, actually, there was a Quidditch match in my backyard not too long ago. Um, uh, my my stepdaughter Grace is totally into Harry Potter right now. Like she's like at the height of Harry Potter fandom, and uh, my sister in law uh, lives with us as well, and she's like the queen of Harry Potter trivia. So she actually ran the the Quidditch game and told all the kids how to play for my stepdaughter's birthday party. And uh, so yeah, it doesn't really look much like what I imagined when I was reading the books, but. Uh, uh, but you know, what are, it's basically like broom ball or something. Right? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's it's got lots of complicated rules. There's like there's things called bludgers, and there's the snitch that they have to try to find, and or in the books they have to try to catch it. Apparently, in the in the real world version, like you hide it somewhere, and then the seeker, as they call him, has to find it, and and the other players have to try to stop him from. I mean, the other the players on the other team have to stop the seeker from finding the snitch. Um, but there's all the, there's so many different moving parts that I couldn't begin to tell you what they all were. Actually, when I was reading Harry Potter, I was listening to the audiobook, so I couldn't actually skim ahead. But every time there was a Quidditch match or whatever, I was like, oh, my God, I just want to fast forward and get past this because like, <laughs> I just can't stand it. I, I, I have so little patience for uh, like fantasy sports like that when, when it's like. But I was afraid to skip it, too, because I didn't want to miss something important. And then, and then regret having skipped it and then have to backtrack or something. But yeah, I just, I, I tuned out a lot. <laughs> I tuned out a lot when it so wait, so having, wait, so having actually listened to all that, was there anything that you needed to know or could I skip it? All <laughs> I think, I... I think you could totally skip it. Definitely. Like I remember, uh, the beginning of Goblet of Fire, which is book four. It's long, long, long extended scene about Quidditch. And it's like the Quidditch World Cup or something. And I think you could totally just skip that and like just get to like, read like the last two pages of it or whatever. And it's like, that's where the stuff happens. That's all you need to read. You know, I think, I think one thing that's kind of fun to imagine um, in sort of the speculative sports field is, is like you think about uh, in football, they have the Denver Broncos are in Denver and they call that mile high stadium or it used to be anyway. So, I mean, the stadium is a mile high. So they actually have a bit of an advantage when they train there because the, because of the oxygen content of the air or whatever. So it's, it's kind of interesting to imagine, like, well, what kind of home team advantages would teams have? Like, say, if you have a league where you have one team that's like on the moon and one team that's on Mars, and you know, yeah, it just would be kind of it would be kind of cool to imagine, like, you know, that would be a real home team advantage then. Yeah, except you know, like the people from the higher graph, like from Earth, would have much mm-hmm. you know stronger bones and yeah, know, true. stronger muscles and stuff like that. Seems like someone ought to have written that story where, you know, it's from the point of view of the, uh, you know, the Martian athletes or something. And then the team from Earth comes and they're all like super strong because they're from a heavier gravity. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Mars team is the underdogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like it must. You're right. But uh, I can't say that I can think of it. But uh, well, I will say if anybody if anybody wants to find out, uh, I did find a ton of anthologies on the subject. 
uh, and we can put a list in, in, on the website maybe, but uh, there was a recent one that Paul Grand did called Future Games, which mixes some games in, but there's also a bunch of sports stories. Uh, and there's one called Future Sports. There's one called Arena, uh, one called Run to Starlight, um, and and then uh, one called The Infinite Arena. And then there's a couple, I think, on baseball. Like one is called Baseball 3000. But, um, you know, like I said, we can put links up uh, for people who want to check these out. And a lot of them are older, but uh, the Future Sports one is another one that's fairly recent within like the last 10 years or so, I think. But, you know, that you, you can go spelunking through the uh, the tables of contents and you can let us know if there's anything like that that's uh, already been written. Because if, if so, it's got to be in one of those anthologies, I would think. Mm. Well, I mean, Doug, you used to be the editor of Realms of Fantasy magazine. Uh, did you guys publish any uh, cool sports stories that we should know about? A few of them. Uh, one of the first stories that I read when I joined up Realms of Fantasy was Anywhere There's a Game by Greg Van Eekhout, and that was a basketball fantasy story, and it was really fun. I can't think of anything else I've read like that that's been published since. Uh, basically, it's this retired basketball player, and he's giving his story to, you know, like an a Sports Illustrated-type reporter. And he gives, like, five mini-stories within the story. Uh, you know, like, one for the power forward, one for the center, one for the point guard. And, like, each of them has, like, this inexplicable experience. So each one has, like, a fantastical bent to it. Some are more subtle than others, but that one was a really cool story. Uh, there was another one all about swimming called Undyne by Catherine Cray about a woman. Well, she was maybe like 18 years old, 17 years old, I think, around that age with like Olympic aspirations. And she got injured, I believe, in like a car accident or something like that. So she can't really swim anymore. And then she like switches places with like a water sprite and the water sprite kind of takes her life and she becomes the water sprite. And she's willing to do this basically because swimming was absolutely everything to her. So now she could swim again. Uh, you also have this uh, how we play the game in Salt Lake listed here. Yeah, I don't remember too much about it, unfortunately, just because, you know, like we've published like over 600 stories. So some of them it's like. They may have been a good story, but you can only store so much in your head about them. But, uh, it's, yeah, it's by M. Shane Bell, and it's a baseball game. And I don't remember why, but in the game, people sacrifice their teeth at, like, a clutch moment so that a player can get a hit. Uh, it, it sounds really bizarre, and it was a bizarre story. I remember that much, but it makes sense within the context of the story. I know, John, how about you? Uh, have you published any good sports stories in uh, Lightspeed or Nightmare or anything? Uh, I don't actually think I've ever published one um, in, in either magazine. Uh, I do have one coming up by Sean and McGuire called Homecoming in the September issue. Um, and uh, um, it's kind of a, a weird situation where it's like you seem to be in some sort of afterlife or something, or there's some sort of nebulous place where the players are, and it's all very strange and... Uh, the players, as they go on the field, like they sort of, they're playing a game against a sort of team that's undefined. And as they make certain plays, like they sort of find their identities and stuff. And and there's a lot of weird stuff going on. And it all comes down to something that's uh, like, like the resolution, I think, is really cool, but I, I don't want to spoil it. Um, and it all it all kind of makes sense when you see where, uh, where she's going with it. But um, I, I thought it was really fun. 
you're actually publishing it like right around the time the NFL kicks off because it's a football story, right? Right. Yeah, it's a football story. And I, I, I did actually try to schedule it so that it was like, OK, well, people are going to be most interested in football right now. Maybe they'll be more likely to, to try a football story, even if they're not necessarily typically a science fiction reader. Maybe they'll try a football story now because it's, you know, hey, it's football season. Uh, you know, although I haven't uh, published uh, too many myself, uh, when I was working at FNSF, I think my favorite uh, sports story that we published was a, a, a baseball story by Gardner Dozois called The Hanging Curve. Um, and actually, he originally submitted it under the title Schrodinger's Baseball. So that, like, if you know Schrodinger's Cat, that'll kind of give you some sense of what it was. But basically, it's like it's like the World Series and uh, a pitcher one of the pitchers throws a, a pitch over the plate and the pitch actually gets stuck in time, basically like right at the plate. And so it's like, you know, it's Schrodinger's baseball, Ooh, right? Because you don't know, is like it going to be a strike or is it going to be a ball? Was the, was the batter going to hit it? And and it's all about the speculation about, about what would happen and people studying the phenomenon and everything. It's, oh, it's such a great story. Um, and it was funny because apparently Gardner is not even a baseball fan. I guess, I guess he just had the idea and, and, and uh, wanted to run with it. So, um, and actually Seanan actually isn't a football fan either. So, um, so it's, it's, it's funny that uh, maybe sometimes a, a great, a great genre sports story can come out of a person who doesn't even like sports. I, I can almost give you the reverse. I haven't published it. It's doing the rounds, but I wrote a zombie football story. And I mean, I love football, but I'm not a zombie fan, but I got the idea. So I wanted to run with it. Actually, speaking of football and zombies, I, I did publish a story in the, in the living dead Two by John Skip and Cody Goodfellow. And in that story, there's zombies that are kind of remote controlled, like they're sort of like like a drone pilot will be driving the zombies around, you know, and and there's a group of them that are basically like undead Oakland Raiders. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> it's not really sports related, but it's kind of fun if you're a sports fan. Uh-huh. I mean, one I wanted to, a story I wanted to mention is uh, called The Beast of the Heartland by Wisha Shepard. Yeah, you know, I saw that you wrote that one down, and but the description, I read it, it sounds awesome. So I want details, Dave, because I want to read that. Okay, well, I, I remember a lot of details, and I'm not sure I'm remembering them right. Uh, but the way I remember it is that there's this boxer, and he's, you know, he's old, and he's maybe he's retired, um, but he's desperate for money, and he has to go back to boxing. Uh, but he's had a, um, like, a detached retina or something, and so he's losing his eyesight. And I think maybe... I might be conflating this with a different story, but I, th- I think he go- he's supposed to take a dive in this fight, right? And um, but so he starts boxing, and because he can't really see very well, his imagination takes over, and it's sort of like you don't know whether he's imagining it or whether he's perceiving some other reality or whatever. But he imagines that he's fighting this monster with this like cavernous furnace mouth and all sorts of weird features like that, and then um, sort of he's sort of halfway through this fight and decides that he doesn't want to throw the fight. And so he's, he decides he's going to, you know, try to win, win this impossible fight, even though he's nearly blind. And man, that story is just so creepy. And I think Wisha Shepard, I mean, I, he, I think he used to write about boxing or something. But I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it, the boxing stuff is totally believable to me. And uh, I've just never forgotten that story. I read it a, a long time ago. Do you know where I can read it? Because I actually want to read that one. It, I'm curious, just based on the description. Well, I have a hunch that it's included in his collection, The Beast of the Heartland and Other Stories. I mean, <laughs> That's a good hunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't even remember where I first read it, but yeah, he does have a collection with it in it. Um, and then another one I want to mention, John put this on the list, but Vanilla Dunk by Jonathan Lethem. Uh, I read this in his collection, uh, The Wall of the Sky, The Wall of the Eye. And it's a story in which somehow in the future, 
they're able to kind of um, encode and save and transfer the skills of professional athletes. And then there's sort of like a bidding war or some sort of auction or something for who, for which new players are going to be able to download those skills. And so the protagonist is someone, he just wants to play on his own merits. And so he doesn't download the skills from any previous great athlete. But so it means that he's, he's only a marginal player. And, um, the, the sort of title character, the Vidal Dunk guy, that's the, the, the nickname of this white athlete who downloads the skills of Michael Jordan. And so now he's the best player, uh, in the NBA. And he's like a total, He's a total dick, this guy. And uh, it's just a really interesting story about, yeah, about some of the, the racial um, dynamics and uh, 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 just built around this really interesting premise of, of sort of getting these high level skills that you haven't really earned yourself. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, when we were talking about this, uh, we obviously wanted to come up with uh, examples of various sports. And I, I knew of this basketball story and, and also the one by Greg Van Eekout that Doug mentioned. Uh, but those were really the only two basketball stories I could think of, which is weird because there are tons of baseball stories. There's so many baseball stories. Like, I mean, for instance, I mentioned that there was a whole anthology on it. And not only was there a whole anthology on it, when I was working at FNSF, uh, Gordon actually contemplated putting together an entire anthology of just the best baseball stories from FNSF. <laughs> so it's like just one magazine had enough baseball stories to do an anthology. There's a lot of nostalgia in baseball and the odd thing is, I mean, people call it the American pastime, uh, but I think that's more just the memory of it. It's not like baseball's ex going extinct or anything, but these days, football, in terms of its popularity, the NFL, it blows baseball out of the water. So, I mean, like, on a realistic level these days, football is the American pastime, but I, I think there's a lot more nostalgia, and I think that has a big aspect to do with it and just you know memories of going to ball games as a kid playing catch with your dad stuff like that you know i mean that feeds in a lot to field of dreams which is i don't know probably the most famous baseball movie there is and it's a great movie i, I love it uh but yeah i haven't seen that you know, like since it first came out so I, I don't remember it that well but uh certainly in my memory that's the best sports mm -hmm. sort of fantasy science fiction sports movie certainly that i can think of by a considerable margin mm -hmm. uh does anyone disagree with that no i think that's i think that's probably true uh i mean looking at that's the list the gold of, standard yeah looking at the list of things we have here it certainly seems like it um oh no angels in the outfield sorry <laughs> <that's> the, <laughs> no 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 uh I, I mean i i i would be i would i would want to watch it again to before i pass that judgment just because like i'm sort of wondering how schmaltzy it might have been but um but i mean al although if you're just comparing it to the other ones that exist like are you saying like the question is are you saying is it a good movie or is it actually or is it just the best of these crappy movies you know so if you make that distinction, um, I think it probably is a good movie, but I, I'd want to watch it again to say for sure. I've seen it like the last year or two, so mm -hmm. I think it holds up really well. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> speaking of Angels in the Outfield, I actually have like a, a small amusing anecdote about that one because I actually saw that in the theater. Um, Poor like, bastard. Uh, uh, yeah, what can I say? I was like 15 or 16. Uh, basically... It deals with, like, the Anaheim Angels. Now I think they're called, like, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, but at the time they were still the Anaheim Angels uh, in Major League Baseball. And I, I don't remember the details because I haven't seen the movie since. It was terrible. But basically, I guess, like, at critical moments, like, there's actually, like, an angel that can 
help out the team or something. And like to summon the angel, you're supposed to like flap your wings or something, like flap your arms or something. <laughs> it, it's really corny and really ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's not even the way I'm describing it that's making it sound bad. It's just bad. And, like, I saw it with, like, some friends. Uh, I don't know why that was the movie we chose. I was vehemently against it. But I was like Dave when he was four at the baseball game. I just wanted it to be over. I wanted to, I wanted to go home. And, like, at the critical moment in the movie, like, you know, when in these kind of movies when everything goes quiet and the pitch is in slow motion and everyone's waiting to see what happens. So like, I I just couldn't take it anymore. I just like stand up in the middle of the theater and I just started flapping my arms (laughs) and the whole theater just like burst out laughing because it was just such a ridiculous movie. And I guess like the theater agreed with me because that was the best part of the whole movie. When I flapped my arms and mock mocking the movie. I'm just I'm just kind of curious to see angels in the outfield because like it combines two of my least favorite things like angels and baseball. So I think it has a strong possibility for being the movie I despise the most. But I, I just I, I'll have to watch it to see. Uh, yeah, but you know, speaking of uh, baseball and nostalgia, um, you know, I, I one of the movies I put on this list was this movie called Rookie of the Year, and it, it's you know it's not a good movie, but it's about a kid who breaks his arm and like the tendons heal too tight, and then suddenly he has like a major league pitching arm. And I mean, to me, that seems like I mean, it's obviously some sort of speculative fiction. I don't know if it's science fiction or fantasy, but it's one of the two because uh, that couldn't really happen. But I mean, it, it reminds me of Tommy John surgery, which uh, if you don't know, it's uh, when a pitcher's arm gets bad. It's like it's it's the tendon in their elbow. Um, they take another tendon from elsewhere on the body i think it's maybe the knee or the achilles tendon i'm not sure but they take it and they replace it and then so suddenly the the pitcher has like a brand new arm and sometimes they actually have like uh they're even better than they ever were um and so i actually had an idea for a story at some point i'm never going to write this so if anybody wants to do it feel free but i was thinking like it would be really cool to have a story where you have like it's set in the old times of baseball before they had radar guns and everything so you didn't know how fast somebody was actually pitching but you could tell like they just like you know oh that guy throwing some heat you know and so i thought like if you have somebody come from another country like not from the united states just from elsewhere in the world and uh and i was thinking like australia because i was thinking i was imagining like a kangaroo tendon or whatever they have some sort of advance that makes this Tommy, this version of Tommy John surgery even better than it is in the real world. And I just thought it would be cool to have a story like that where, like, people are just astounded by this guy and then you should, like, uh, sort of investigating the mystery of, like, how he got to be that way or, or whatever. Uh, or they could take, like, an alien tendon. Yeah, sure. Um, has anyone seen Space Jam? <laughs> Unfortunately. So, I haven't seen it. Tell, tell us about Space Jam. <laughs> Oh, God. Space Jam, it's starring Michael Jordan, and he teams up with the Looney Tunes, you know, like Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, etc. And so it's like real Michael Jordan uh, on the screen uh, with, like, the cartoon characters. Think like Roger Rabbit. You got real people plus the cartoons. So he teams up with them uh, to play a baseball game against alien slavers. As I recall, the alien slavers are also animated, uh, to determine, like, the freedom of the human race. And, you know, like, the Looney Tunes are pretty much outclassed by these aliens who are really big and bad and bruising. But of course, it's Michael Jordan, so... You know, now they have a chance, and the Looney Tunes, uh, you know, they throw in a few tricks here and there in classic Looney Tunes fashion, and gee, who do you think wins at the end? 
Well, because, you know, you know, like on Star Trek, sometimes they would go to some alien planet and then, like, Kirk would have to compete at some alien, weird alien sport or something. Mm-hmm. And that always, like, I'm like, come on, that would be, like, as if an alien came here and had to, like, beat Michael Jordan at basketball or something. Mm-hmm. Like, makes, it's completely impossible. <laughs> My favorite thing about Space Jam, actually, is uh, if you Google the Space Jam website, it still exists. And it's like a, it's like a, a, a time capsule from 1996. It's amazing. Like if you just look, it's like it's like ridiculous. But I mean, it's like imagine what website design was like in 1996, and like think about websites now. And it's like, how is this website still online? Like they didn't take it down. Why is it still there? Who's going to the Space Jam website? Um, but it's 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 just it's so awful. Um, and it's like it's actually it's kind of great though to look at and see how far we've come. But if we're gonna talk about bad basketball movies, we have to talk about the best bad basketball movie ever, which is clearly Teen Wolf. Uh, yeah, I don't remember it. I don't remember. I just remember he turns into a wolf and plays basketball. Actually, the only part of that movie I remember <laughs> is like the scene where he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's turned into a werewolf and then his parents like come into the bathroom and they've also been turned into werewolves and... Just you know, his dad. Oh, 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 oh. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, like if your parents catch you jerking off except you're a werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> but uh i mean i watched it religiously as a kid I, it was one of those movies i must mm-hmm. have watched like 30 or 40 times you know michael j fox is the werewolf his friend styles i mean it was popular in its day oh it had goodness. its own it had its own spin-off cartoon on channel two i remember um and, you know michael j fox is just he, he's on the basketball team and the team is really lousy and then Boom, he, suddenly he's a werewolf, and now he's, you know, the best player on the team, and, you know, they're winning games, basically Michael J. Fox doing 90% of everything, and now he's the coolest kid in school, and now he's with the most popular girl in school, but she only wants to hang out with him when he's the werewolf, and when <laughs> you think about that, that's really freaky, because now you're almost getting into, like, bestiality kind of stuff. Yeah, so what I want to know is, does the new Teen Wolf show on MTV have basketball in it? Because if so, we must watch it. I'm not sure. I didn't even see, like, the sequel, which mm. I was I was very dead set against the sequel, Teen Wolf 2, because there was no Michael J. Fox. Yep. I think it was Jason, think it was Jason Bateman instead. Yeah. I'm like, this is garbage. <laughs> like, this, is, this is from, like, a seven-year-old. And that movie was the sequel. It was Teen Wolf 2. T-O-O, because he's also a Teen Wolf. And that was the first time I'd ever seen them do something clever like that with the title of a movie. So (laughs) it was a formative experience for me. All right, cool. So we're we're sort of running short on time here. Um, I do want to mention some of the things that listeners were nice enough to suggest for us. I am not familiar with most (laughs) of these. So I'm just going to just run through these. And if anyone like has anything to throw in, just throw it in. But Mm -hmm. people mentioned Blitzball from Final Fantasy X. It's like underwater rugby. If Matt London was here, I'm sure he could uh, escape on that. <laughs> uh, the Running Man from Neo Tokyo short film. Judge Dredd, there's something called Boeing. I don't know. Uh, Mutant League Football for Sega Genesis. Hussad from a Jack Vance novel. Uh, oh, there, well, there's the novel Michael Shabon Summerland, which is kind of like they travel to a fantasy world that's kind of like a baseball-inspired fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Beastly Game short story uh, by Sarah... Pinsker is a vampire rugby story. Arrowball from the beginnings of the 2000 AD comic, the captain's wrestling match near the beginning of Babel 17. Uh, 
bully ball or scavage. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> SL Veal's shock ball and Sharon Shin's ball trek. Apparently there's zero G football and red dwarf. Actually, that reminds me apparently in um, ice pirates. I don't remember this, but apparently uh, at one point they're watching rollerball on a screen as if it's a real sport. And I think they just have you know shots from the movie rollerball. Um, anyway, getting back to the list, Gary Khan's rules of moops ball, <laughs> jugger from blood of heroes. Uh, and somebody mentioned Andrew Weiner's story, the third test, which in which aliens uh, visit Earth to watch a cricket match between England and Australia. Yeah, actually, that that just reminds me. Uh, I, I wanted to mention, you know, in uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in in the one of the sequels, the the life the, the life the universe and everything, uh, you know, aliens come to watch like this big uh, cricket match, and and it's a sort of important event in the book, and uh, and and in the world of the novel, it's uh, like cricket is actually like it's like some sort of death sport in an alien culture. And then like England had appropriated it and turned it into the game cricket that we know now. But um, apparently in the original version, like uh, the, the winner decided the fate of the universe or something like that. I don't know. I'm kind of vague on it. I don't, you know, on the details, but it was something like that. It was like, do you remember that Dave? Well, I, I haven't read it since I was a little kid, but the way I remember it is that there was this horrible robot army or something. And they, they had them like the worst, uh, you know, it was like the worst war in history. And our uh, game of cricket is like like mm. the most distant echo of this horrible war. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That sounds right. Um, but does <laughs> did anyone recognize any of those uh, <laughs> listener suggestions? Nope. Ah, uh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, Michael Michael Shabe on Summerland. I knew that, and uh, I think I'd heard of the Jack Vance thing, uh, but I haven't read that one. I could plug a couple of more stories that I think are pretty cool to mention. Yeah, go for it. Uh, well, for comic books, uh, if we want to talk about like gladiators slash death sports, uh, I want to mention the Planet Hulk storyline. Um, I actually haven't read the comics, but I knew about them. And you know how Marvel always puts out like those 45 minute to hour cartoon movies? They have one for the Planet Hulk storyline. And I saw that. So the, the basic idea is, you know, like this Illuminati type association in the Marvel universe, like with characters, you know, like Reed Richards and Tony Stark and I, I think Samariner. I, I can't remember everyone, but they basically decide, all right, Hulk, you're too dangerous and you cause too much destruction. We're getting rid of you. And they have him on this spaceship and it's going to like land him on this tranquil, deserted planet where he can live out his days. And, you know, Hulk gets all angry in the ship and he starts bashing it and it gets knocked off course and he ends up on a different planet. And this one's inhabited and it's inhabited by a very warlike people, uh, very strong, very dangerous, and they love their death sports and they manage to take the Hulk captive and he gets put in one death sport after the next, against these ridiculously brutal, powerful, dangerous creatures and machines, etc. And you just see Hulk get to go basically Hulk nasty. And hmm. it's like, who better to put in death sports than the Incredible Hulk? All he does is get angrier, and all they <laughs> do is throw more and more dangerous things at him. So if you don't want to, like, you know, buy every single comic, you can get a really good condensed version of it 
in the Marvel movie, and it's it's a really good movie. I, I highly endorse it. Great storyline. So that's the ultimate one for uh, Gladiator Death Sports. And for like we, you mentioned like the the long walk for Stephen King. So th- instead of walking, I'll mention uh, racing by another well-known horror author called Hell's Event by Clive Barker. This is like a, a long story, uh, shorter, you know, sh- not a novel, but novelette, short story. I don't remember exactly. It's from the Books of Blood, and basically, uh, it takes place in London, and there's a runner where if he doesn't win the race, like hell is going to claim a ridiculous amount of souls. And, you know, obviously hell is never going to play fair. So while this guy is jogging, all these horrible things are happening where it's of a supernatural variety where, you know, like uh, you see demons, someone gets dragged down, like maybe into the actual cement, stuff like that, because uh, hell doesn't play fair. And it's a pretty horrifying story. I- I'd recommend it for the horror fans out there. All right, cool. Uh, I guess just the last thing I wanted to talk about is just uh, do we guys do you guys have any predictions for where sports are headed? Uh, you know, in real life in the future. I mean, um, I mean, sort of one thing I've noticed is that when I was a kid at family gatherings, all the adults would all be watching the football game, and you know, people like in my family, my age or younger, we don't watch football at all. We, we like, watch movies or play video games or something. And I don't know if maybe that's just my family, but I, I do wonder if. Uh, our, our video games supplanting sports uh, as, as far as, you know, like a mm. spectator activity? Uh, well, I would say like, you know, in America, you have the four major American sports, which is hockey, baseball, basketball, and football. And, you know, every once in a while in baseball or hockey or basketball, you'll hear like the owners crying poverty and, you know, like uh, we're losing money, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess it's possible in the future one of those sports could eventually go away. I mean, like in Deep Space Nine, they made Benjamin Sisko a huge baseball fan, but the only way he ever gets to experience it is on the holodeck because they decided baseball, you know, it went away. But football is still growing exponentially at a ridiculous rate. You know, it's one of the safest financial institutions there is in America right now. It's so much bigger than the other sports and it's still just growing at a ridiculous rate. So the at the rate things are going, unless something drastically changes, I don't think football is going to go away anytime soon. It's a machine. And it's only gotten more popular because of fantasy football. Mm-hmm. Well how about, and how about robots uh, replacing humans? I mean one thing I noticed when I on the rare occasions that I watch a football game, is that all the animated graphics they always have robot football players, <laughs> and I don't know like our, I don't know like if that's uh, like our football fans just really into robots and like would they you know would they watch a game featuring actual robots? Football fans are rabid, so we'd probably watch the robots too. I mean, I, if if you told me tomorrow there's a a football robot league coming out, I'd be I'd be like I'd watch it. I mean, I watched the XFL when that came out, and that was awful. Um. <laughs> which is why I only watched a half. I didn't even get through the full game. But I don't think that the robots could really replace the humans because there's the the human element in sports is one of the things that makes sports so exciting. You know, you, you start identifying with athletes 
Uh, you like it when like athletes score or when they make a nice play on defense or off or offense and they give this emotional outburst. You know, it, you see how much they care and it makes you care more about the game if you're a fan. And it's, it just wouldn't be the same if a robot was doing that. Okay. Well, how about a cyborg? <laughs> well, it's, is this a cyborg with a human brain that could? Yeah, still, no, you know? yeah, like, well, yeah, you just have the players, and they just, you know, have, they have, they get robot arms and legs, and you know, robot heart and stuff. And okay, I think that would be a lot more likely to go over well. But then you get, then you get into like all sorts of stuff about, hey, what's fair versus what isn't? Unless everyone's a cyborg, it almost makes you think of like what happened in the Olympics with Oscar Pretorius. If uh, people haven't heard of him, he was a sprinter with two, uh, instead of like, from like, let's say, just above the knees down, he lost his legs and it was just like these blades that he could run on instead. And in some respects, they, it was said that it gives him an advantage, uh, because that's like how far like technology has come where, hey, this guy doesn't have legs, but maybe it's an advantage instead. And there was all, I don't want to call it a controversy, but there was a, a very serious discussion about whether this guy is allowed to participate in the Olympics as opposed to the Paralympics. And ultimately, he was allowed to participate. He didn't win anything, but, you know, people are saying, oh, he's a hero, whatever. And then months later, like, he killed his girlfriend and, oh, he's a horrible person now. But so it's a very strange story with Oscar Pretorius. But, you know, the the whole murder part aside, stories <laughs> like that... Stories like that, it's like, that, that's like one of the first ones you can hear as opposed to one of the last ones. That, like, when you get into the whole cyborg discussion, that's going to become more prevalent in the future. Uh, what gives an edge versus what doesn't? Maybe that'll be like the new thing. Instead of like steroids and performance enhancing drugs, you'll be talking about this stuff because you always want a level playing field. Yeah, that would be the ultimate advantage is to be secretly a cyborg. You know, not that not in a situation where everyone's a cyborg, but, you know, you sort of illegally and illicitly, uh, you know, sneakily get uh, get cyborged up and, and then that gives you your advantage. So, yeah, like instead of steroids, uh, you, you do that instead. And that, that could be an interesting story, too. It sounds like the best episode of Bionic 6 ever. <laughs> no, that was that was an actual there's an actual episode where uh, it actually was, that I think, the best one where, uh, you know, the kid has secret bionic powers. And he's trying out for the Yankees and mm -hmm. uh, he's promised not to use his bionic powers, but then people are kind of like pissing him off. And so then he uses it and then he like hits the ball so hard it disintegrates, you know, <laughs> as it's uh, flying over the, uh, you know, out of the stadium. Um, but then he decides that's not right. And so he, you know, he quits, but it's a really good story, you know. Hmm. Well, I'm surprised that you only mentioned that as an afterthought here at the end that you didn't, you know, mention that earlier. Seems like a surefire. Example I wanted to that. save the best for last, baby. All right, cool. So we're uh, we're way over time here. So why don't we start wrapping this up? Uh, so Doug, I did want I mentioned uh, when I introduced you that you have this new Douglas Cohen Editorial dot com website. You want to tell people what that's all about? Uh, basically, I'm taking a lot of my editorial knowledge and experience, and I'm offering my services in a freelance capacity. Uh, obviously, my specialty is science fiction and fantasy. So if you have a manuscript that you're trying to polish up in various respects, it could be for plot, character, voice, etc., or it could be, you know, just copy editing or proofreading. There's a variety of services, but you can get in touch with me and I'll work with you to try and polish up the manuscripts to get it ready for maybe a literary agent or an editor 
or publisher, depending on what route you're going. Maybe you want to self-publish, but you still want it to just look better than where it currently is, and you want like some feedback from someone with some experience in the field, you can talk to me, and we can work something out. Um, my first client, actually, was thanks to Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, because you guys mentioned my business on your Facebook account, and Zach Chapman uh, ended up working with me, who's one of your listeners. And I worked on, I think, the first 20, 25,000 words of his novel. It's kind of a Gene Wolfe, new Book of the New Sun kind of deal. Uh, and, you know, it, by the way, Zach, uh, I hope you're still working on that because it was pretty good. Uh, but, you know, he was very happy with the feedback. So he was nice enough to give me a testimonial. So you can even read his testimonial on my website from one of your fellow listeners. And if you have questions, you feel free to contact me. All right, cool. And so that website again was douglascoheneditorials.com. And I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Doug, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks again for having me. Always happy to come back. And, of course, big thanks again to Chris Cooley for being our guest today. Special thanks as well to Scott Osterling for becoming subscriber number 57. Scott also asks if it's possible to make monthly payments to the show via PayPal. So I just set up a button to do that. To learn more, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on subscribe. Scott is also one of the folks who came out and met John and me at Kepler's Bookstore in Palo Alto when John was on tour for his book, The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination. So hi, Scott. It was nice meeting you. If anyone in the New York area wants to meet me and other listeners, you should follow Geek's Guide to the Galaxy NYC on Facebook or Geek's Guide NYC on Twitter. Recent events that have been posted there include a Choose Your Own Adventure party at the Singularity and Company bookstore, an appearance by Lev Grossman and Austin Grossman at Greenlight Bookstore, and the giant Tor.com party at Housing Works Bookstore. The latest event to be posted there is a Harry Potter slash Game of Thrones spelling bee that I'll be competing in on the evening of Saturday, August 24th at Word Bookstore in Brooklyn. That's the same day this episode airs. Hope to see some of you guys at that or future events. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.